This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Thanks for listening. I just wanted to let everyone know that I'll be taking two weeks off. So this will be the last episode until the middle of August. Sorry about that, but thanks for listening. Now on to today's podcast. Welcome back. You know what you don't see much of? You don't see old people telling really small children there's no Santa Claus. You do see little children who have just learned there's no Santa Claus telling their unenlightened siblings or friends that there's no Santa Claus. And the reason that they do this is multifold. Some of them are just mean. Some of them are anal and they just want everyone to know the truth. Some of them are shocked themselves and need a little bit of comfort and want some company in their misery. But you don't ever see old people telling little kids that there's no Santa Claus. Why is this old people know there's no Santa Claus, presumably? And by the way, if you have young children listening to this podcast, maybe you ought to send them into the other room. Young children that believe in Santa Claus, that is. I don't want to be the source of anyone's disillusionment. But old people know there's no Santa Claus. So why don't they tell young children there's no Santa Claus? Now, old people don't necessarily perpetuate the hoax either. They're not, you know, propounding the great Santa Claus lie either in in my experience watching them. But they're not going around disabusing these young children of their fantasies either. They seem to kind of let the kids believe in Santa Claus, have their fun with it. And then if the child awakens a little bit and comes to grandma or grandpa or the trusted neighbor and says, is there, golly, I've been thinking about this. Is there really a Santa Claus? Then they may answer the question if it's asked directly to them. But old people seem to let this kind of grow organically, bake, mature, and then when the child's ready, if the child asks, then they'll let them know. But, no, but they're not going around bashing the dreams of children. Now, parents of small children are in a different position. They've got to make a decision on the whole Santa Claus hoax, don't they? We're either going to tell our children they're Santa Claus, lie to them, and then deal with the consequences later, or we're going to rob them of all their childhood fun and innocence by saying from the very beginning, there's no Santa Claus, no magic, no fun. That's, that's the choice that parents often have. And some parents get very angsty about this. Oh, what should I do about Santa Claus? New parents in particular struggle with this. Do we tell them there's a Santa Claus? Oh, no, but, but then it was so much fun. Oh. But older people, grandparents, they just are so zen about it, they don't seem to care one way or the other. It's like it doesn't even matter. You know, if the child believes in Santa Claus, that's fine. If the child doesn't, that's okay. If the child does at one point and then comes later to the grandpa and asks explicitly about this whole Santa Claus thing, they're willing to be honest at that point when the child's ready. If the child wants to figure it out on his or her own, they're, they're fine with that too. They don't need to be the source of all knowledge for the child. There just seems to be this instinctive faith and comfort with the process of learning the facts about Santa Claus, that is. Now, when we talk about Santa Claus, it's kind of silly, right? It's kind of dumb. But the reason I raise Santa Claus is because it's illustrative of this process in life. The process of 
ever-evolving belief systems that are taken on temporarily, considered, morphed as either true or false, knowns or unknowns, internalized, discarded, and then new beliefs or new additions to belief systems introduced and newly considered again and again and again. And as we grow and progress through life, we start to learn the difference between beliefs that are wrong and facts. And then we start to learn the real role of faith. And we start to learn that we can have faith in certain outcomes where the outcome's unknown. There's multiple potentials. And if we do certain things, we can bring to pass certain outcomes. We start to have faith in in the causal effects of things. And then we start to realize that there are certain things that are just facts. And whether we believe them or not, they just are. And our belief has nothing to do with those outcomes. They just are knowns. And the whole Santa Claus myth is so interesting, right? Because in the movies, it's portrayed that if you believe in Santa Claus, somehow you can bring about the factual existence of Santa Claus, right? Is that not what every dumb Christmas movie since celluloid was invented tells us as the moral of the story? You know, if you believe in Santa Claus, then he'll be. Then he'll come and everything will be great and the magic of Christmas will be there and Santa Claus will show up with gifts. But if you don't believe, then Santa Claus won't. Well, that's a fundamental misapplication of faith, right? Because Santa Claus exists or he doesn't irrespective of one's belief in him. And there are things like that in life. You can believe or not believe in the moon, but the moon is the moon is the moon. On the other hand, there are other areas of life where belief is so fundamentally critical to the outcome. If you believe you are stupid and a loser with no future, well, that's what's going to happen to you. You will do dumb things and you will not have a future. On the other hand, if you believe that you're worth something, if you believe that God loves you, If you believe that you can get help from beyond, well, those things will come based on your belief, too. And life seems to have a way of teaching us these lessons, lessons about facts, lessons about faith, lessons about beliefs. And it seems to kind of happen over time as it should for the participants in life, the the, the people on this earth. You know, so why are old people not disabusing young children of Santa Claus? Well, they have a fundamental belief and understanding of this process. They've been through it themselves. They know somehow it's all going to work. It's all going to be fine. They've seen the forces at work in their own lives that have taught them the lessons that they need to learn. And so they're less uptight about controlling the process. They know there's something bigger, stronger, more insightful than they are. And they know that the kid who believes in Santa Claus is going to learn what he needs to learn, not just about Santa Claus, but lots of other things in life over time. Well, that's an interesting position to be in. And we call people who are in that position actualized. We call them transcendent or enlightened or whatever it is. They understand something through their own experience about how life works. And they're going to let those forces work on others. They're going to do their role, whatever that is. But they can let go and go with it a little bit more. Now, it's not just Santa Claus where we see this pattern. 
My young nephew and his young bride are living with us this summer. He's living down in the basement. We have a kitchen down there and a spare bedroom. He's got an internship here in town. He's bright. He's smart. He's awesome. He's getting ready to apply to medical school. He's got one more year at BYU. He is an eager beaver. Wonderful kid. Fantastic. But he's got a life plan. He's got a certain understanding of how things are going to work out. Certain expectations. He's quite confident in them. And it's not like I'm this wizened old, you know, holy man sitting at the top of the hill alone. But but I've got a few more miles on the old odometer than he does. Granted, he's my older brother's son. And my older brother's quite a few years older than I am. So the age difference between us is not that huge. But, you know, it's big enough so that I can sense his naivete about a few things. But it's neither kind nor generous for me to point those things out explicitly. That's not my job. That's life's job. That's God's job. No, I have a job, part of it. I mean, he, he may come to me and ask me explicitly what I think about X, Y, and Z. Or there may be a moment when I catch him looking like a deer in headlights because he's just had some expectation dashed when I'll have a little bit of insight. But it's not my job to disabuse him of his erroneous understandings of the facts of life or his misapplications of faith or his bad set of expectations that will never be met. You know, partially because unlike Santa Claus, I may not know. But even if I did know, it's just that's not my job. That's none of our jobs. Now, this is a hard thing to do in life because when we get a little bit of knowledge, the first thing we want to do is go and show off. Look what I can do. I'm so smart. Look what I know. Oh, you don't know that. You thought you knew this, but this is how it really is. Blah, blah. You know, that's what we all want to do when we get some great insight. We want to go and share it. And I guess that's an okay impulse. But sometimes it's tantamount to going up to a little kid and saying, hey, there's no Santa Claus. Did you know that? Well, that's not nice. Sometimes we're showing off our newfound knowledge in a way that makes us look better and smarter than we are, forgetting that our own knowledge and our own progress came through our own trial and error, through life's impacts on us as orchestrated by God. And so sometimes we get a little bit ahead of ourselves and get a little bit of arrogant when we start to learn some things. Now it gets really tricky when we're a parent and we see a child or if we're a sibling and we see our brother or sister heading down a path that we know leads to misery, that we know leads to no good, to pain, and we're motivated to intervene. Sometimes those are good motivations, and sometimes that is our job, in fact. We need to intervene because the outcome can be so bad, so harmful for all involved. You know, we think about young girls getting pregnant, for example, or people drinking and driving, committing crimes that's gonna, that might land them in jail. Or we see people who are just angry about things, and we can see how destructive their anger is. And we just want to stop the end results and spare them the pain. That's when our faith in God and our faith in the processes of life are really tested. And that's when we learn that even when we do intervene, even when we do all we can, it never seems to do as much as we want it to. We should do it. we got to do all we can, but it just doesn't seem to 
accomplish all that we hoped because that person needs to learn the lessons on their own terms. They need to get their own experience. That's when it gets really hard for those of us on the sidelines looking on to move forward with faith, to let go, to surrender, whatever it is. I was called into a bishopric mm, 10 years ago now, I think, yeah, around 10 years ago. And there was a guy in the stake presidency, one of the members, who I just thought was a phony. The stake presidency had some program where they were going to split with members of the bishoprics of each of the wards in the stake. And we were going to go out and visit the less active. So you don't know me well, but you probably know me well enough to know that that was, you know, a triggering event for me. You know, I just hate this categorizing people as less active. And, and we, the great leadership, the hierarchy, will go out and bestow our blessings upon the, you know, that whole thing just strikes me as so arrogant. It, that's what it strikes me. It's just arrogant, condescending. You know, maybe the roots of this go all the way back to how my mother's family treated my own father. They were arrogant in my mind in the way that they treated him. So maybe, I mean, who knows where these hangups come from? But that sort of thing triggered me, and I was a new member of this bishopric, and I thought, oh, no. And then they paired me off with this guy, the, the big phony. And I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. Well, as we were driving around that afternoon, this phony member of the stake presidency and me, we started chatting about our lives, and he started telling me the story of his oldest son. And his oldest son was addicted to heroin. You know, this guy who looked like he could be Joseph Smith's great-great-great-grandson, you know, perfectly coiffed hair, wearing the Mormon uniform of white shirt, tie, jacket, someone who was fluent in all the bureaucratic language of the church. Well, he was not what I thought he was. He was not some big phony. And he started telling me about his son, the heroin addict. And how eventually he had to kick his own son out of his house because his son was lying, stealing from them, found out the, the pin codes to their debit cards, had emptied their bank accounts to buy more drugs. When they confronted about it, he lied to their face. Even so, the last thing they wanted to do was send him away. That terrified them. They wanted to help him. They wanted to solve his problems for him. They wanted to teach him, take care of him, protect him. But every counselor that they'd ever met with said, look, this kid needs to hit rock bottom and you're enabling him. You need to just let him go and suffer the consequences. Hit rock bottom. You need to let this kid go and learn the lessons that life is going to teach him on his own. Get his own knowledge. Well, you know, this guy that I had prejudged. Because of the way he looked and his happy disposition. And he had a happy disposition in spite of all this. You know, it made me feel like the most judgmental, superficial jerk in, in the world. You know, why had I projected my own hang-ups from my own upbringings if that were was the source of some of these hang-ups? Hang why had I projected that on this poor guy who's, whose son was a drug addict? And so he, he and his wife did that. They kicked him out. They said, you're no longer welcomed here. And they didn't know where he was or where he had gone to after they did this. He, he just, you know, was he on the streets? Was he with friends? They didn't know. He was just gone. Then he told me that the day after he did this, the day after he kicked his son out, they called him into the state presidency.
Well, if you don't believe in a God who has set up life to teach us some lessons about facts and faith, well, I think this story of this member of the stake presidency is instructive. You know, as we're driving along, I'm on the edge of my seat. You know, so I said, what what happened? Where, where, you know, where did your son end up? He said, well, after about six months or so, eight months or so, he he hit rock bottom. And then he kind of decided on his own to address his addiction. And he came back and he said, I need help. I don't want to be this way anymore. Help me. And so he did. He took him back in, got him treatment, and, and the kid got over his addiction. Now, this kid will always be an addict in a sense. There's always the potential that he'll slide back into a life of drug abuse. You know, once an addict, always an addict. But that fact serves as a perpetual reminder to this kid that there are consequences and there are dangers in life. Be careful. Obviously, that was a lesson he had to learn. And he can use that constant threat, that constant danger of addiction as a reminder to himself to be vigilant, to pay attention, to be aware of what's going on inside you. I'm sure his father would have loved to have taught him this lesson. I'm sure his father would have loved to have had his son be spared the pain I'm sure he would have loved to have just implanted the knowledge into his brain, you know, like with a flash drive if he could have. But that was not how this kid was going to learn. In fact, as well-intentioned as his father was, his father was delaying this lesson by enabling his son. Wow, that's that's so freaking heavy and tough to learn. And for this poor guy, the father, who had to do that to his son, man was his faith in the process of life and in God's overseeing of it. Man, that must have been tested. And for this poor boy (laughs) who had to swim through the depths of addiction, the depths of life on the street as an addict and all you have to do to slake your need for more drugs. Well, well, that's a pretty, those are some pretty tough lessons too. But in the end, their belief systems are more accurate, aren't they, for the father and for the son and for me, this critical jerk on the sidelines who would criticize this guy in my mind as a phony, as someone who aspired to church calling, as someone who was just a rah-rah goody two-shoes. Well, the whole thing taught me a thing or two as well. Well, it's interesting how these lines, these paths of life all kind of intersected in a way that's just miraculous, divine. And it didn't come about because there was some guy marching around saying there's no Santa Claus, like the world's biggest smarty pants. We spent the rest of the afternoon visiting the less active. But I could see this guy that I was traveling with, this member of the stake presidency, did not think of them as less active as just some category. He didn't look at them as just some checkbox to be checked off on his list of things to do on his way to the celestial kingdom. He just saw them as people who were alone, who needed a friend. And they weren't all like that, but some really were. And boy, with those, 
he had a magic touch. He knew how to love and help them on their terms address the questions that they were asking, giving them the love and encouragement that they needed. I imagine when his son gets a little bit older, he'll be able to do those things too. In spite of his addiction or maybe because of it, all of these experiences come together and they're all good in the end. I imagine as all three of us This man, his son, and me, as we all get older, will have a little bit more faith in the process. And that'll be comforting, which hopefully will make us a little more Zen-like. Jesus talked about this when he said, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I mean, in my mind, that's Jesus basically telling everyone to calm down. There's someone in charge here. There's a purpose to all this. It's all bigger than you know. You're not going to really understand it until after the fact, in retrospect. So just, you know, go with it. And when you go through a few of these tough cycles, then you wake up and you're a little more zen-like and it starts to all make sense. But, you know, we can't explain it all to you now. So just, just, you know, just have a little faith. Just get through it. And somehow you're going to learn what's fact and you're going to learn where you need to exercise some faith and you're going to see God's hand. I mean, he's kind of saying, look, things are going to work out. Just relax. Well, it's hard to do that if your son's a heroin addict and you've just kicked him out of the house. So this is not necessarily an easy thing to do, particularly the first couple times through the tough cycles. But if you can hang in there, then you can see the majesty and the miracles of it all. And at the end of it, nowhere does Jesus say, yeah, and when you become enlightened, go disabuse others of their fantasies. No, he doesn't say that. He tells us instead to be meek, (laughs) to be long-suffering, to be humble. And one of the ways God teaches us both faith and humility is by giving us challenges that are just beyond us, beyond our knowledge, beyond our energy level, beyond our ability to have faith, to project a a, a positive outcome when things seem just beyond our grasps and lost. The great stories and parables in our holy books illustrate these type of situations. Think back to the scene where Christ and his disciples are on the ship in the Sea of Galilee and this huge gale comes up and starts tossing them about. The waves get huge. The rain is raging, and the disciples are getting freaked out. They think, man, we're, we're about to, you know, sink, die, drown. And they look over at Jesus, and the guy's asleep. And they wake him up, and they say, hey, uh, Master, have, have you noticed the, the gale here that's about to engulf our ship? And what does he say? You know, have a little faith. It's going to work out. They can't see how that makes any sense. It's not, it doesn't make sense. And then he calms the seas. Oh, that's how it makes sense. There's something bigger than, than we are. There's some force more powerful who's orchestrating things. It's trying to teach us bigger lessons than we can even imagine for ourselves. And the storms will calm down. What a great parable. And how many hymns And conference talks and sacrament talks, have you heard about the storms of life? It's a pretty helpful parable. 
because there are times in our lives that just get beyond us. When we not only have to let go, there's just no other, we just have no other choice but to let go. And the first time or two through these things, it's pretty scary. But we can all have faith that this is part of life. And there's a bigger force orchestrating things to teach us what we need to learn. So we can know fact from fiction, know when faith is relevant. So we don't need to go around disabusing each other of our various fantasies. God's aware of our fantasies more than we are of our own or certainly of others. And life will take care of it. Instead, take another look at the Beatitudes and learn a little lesson from that passage of Scripture on how we should act. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Be the salt of the earth. Nowhere does it say, blessed are the smarty pants, the know-it-alls. Blessed are the condescending and the competitive. Blessed are the control freaks who have to be right all the time. Because none of those things add up to humility, patience, and love. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's hard to surrender. We think surrender is weak. We think surrender represents failure. It means quitting. And if you live in the West, and if you live in our community, those are anathema. But if you think that, you haven't read the Gospels, have you? There are four versions of the Gospel, and they all end the same way. Jesus, the Son of God, the most powerful person who's ever lived... On his knees, submitting in Gethsemane, submitting to Herod, who lashed him and beat him up. Submitting to the indignities of the cross. Submitting to the execution orchestrated by the Romans and the Jews in concert. That's the way all the Gospels end. And none of us say, oh, Jesus, that quitter, that weakling. And why did he submit? Because there were forces greater than he at work, teaching him and the rest of humanity some critical lessons. His path and those of all of our paths have somehow miraculously and with majesty become intertwined. And if Jesus had to go through those sort of things to become something new, well, maybe we do too. Not as severe as that, perhaps, but... You know, if you're the guy, if you're the state presidency counselor whose son is a drug addict or you've got a troubled child or your spouse suddenly left you, boy, it feels like a Garden of Gethsemane for you, doesn't it? And it sure is hard to just let go and believe that the lessons you're going to learn are worth it. And oftentimes we don't believe that as we're going through that. We just don't. It's just beyond us. Like it was beyond Peter when he saw Christ's dead body hauled down from the cross. You know, there are times when there's just no hope and nothing makes sense. But when the light returns to our life after being through a period like that, boy, it's miraculous indeed, as miraculous as Christ's resurrection itself was, because we weren't expecting it. Well, when you get to that point, when you've been down that path, 
you don't have the same impulse to go back to the little kid and like a smarty pants tell him, you know, there's no Santa Claus. You're a little kinder than that. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Until next time, email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. I'll be taking two weeks off, so I'll see you in the middle of August. Thanks for listening.